Welcome to the Sense Making in a Changing World podcast, where we explore the kind of thinking we need to navigate a positive way forward. I'm your host, Maura Gamble, permaculture educator and global ambassador, filmmaker, eco-villager, food forester, mother, practivist, and all-round lover of thinking, communicating, and acting regeneratively. For a long time, it's been clear to me that to shift trajectory to a thriving one-planet way of life, we first need to shift our thinking. The way we perceive ourselves in relation to nature, self, and community is the core. So this is true now more than ever, and even the way change is changing is changing. Unprecedented changes are happening all around us at a rapid pace. So how do we make sense of this? To know which way to turn, to know what action to focus on, so our efforts are worthwhile and nourishing and are working towards resilience, regeneration and reconnection. What better way to make sense than to join together with others in open, generative conversation? In this podcast, I'll share conversations with my friends and colleagues, people who inspire and challenge me in their ways of thinking, connecting and acting. These wonderful people are thinkers, doers, activists, scholars, writers, leaders, farmers, educators, people whose work informs permaculture and spark the imagination of of what a post-COVID, climate-resilient, socially just future could look like. Their ideas and projects help us to make sense in this changing world, to compost and digest the ideas and to nurture the fertile ground for new ideas, connections and actions. Together we'll open up conversations in the world of permaculture design, regenerative thinking, community action, earth repair, eco-literacy and much more. I can't wait to share these conversations with you. Over the last three decades of personally making sense of the multiple crises we face, I always return to the practical and positive world of permaculture with its ethics of earth care, people care and fair share. I've seen firsthand how adaptable and responsive it can be in all contexts, from urban to rural, from refugee camps to suburbs. It helps people make sense of what's happening around them and to learn accessible design tools to shape their habitat positively and to contribute to cultural and ecological regeneration. This is why I've created the Permaculture Educators Program, to help thousands of people to become permaculture teachers everywhere through an interactive online dual certificate of permaculture design and teaching. We sponsor global perma-youth programs, women's self-help groups in the global south, and teens in refugee camps. So anyway, this podcast is sponsored by the Permaculture Education Institute and our Permaculture Educators Program. If you'd like to find more about permaculture, I've created a four-part permaculture video series to explain what permaculture is and, and also how you can make it your livelihood as well as your way of life. We'd love to invite you to join our wonderfully inspiring, friendly and supportive global learning community. So I welcome you to share each of these conversations and I'd also like to suggest you create a local conversation circle to explore the ideas shared in each show and discuss together how this makes sense in your local community and environment. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which I meet and speak with you today, the Gubby Gubby people, and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. It's my absolute delight to be welcoming to the Sensemaking in a Changing World show someone I consider to be a leading ecological thinker activist of our time, international best-selling author, scientist, writer, educator, Fritjof Capra. 
someone I am honoured to call a mentor, an inspiration and a very dear friend. Our conversation in this episode spans a five-decade history of ecological and youth movements, being part of a community of elders, the importance of permaculture and agroecological approaches, peace, learning communities, eco-literacy, earth ethics and social change. About 30 years ago, Fritjof and I met at Schumacher College in England at a residential course he was leading with a global learning community. This experience transformed my life. I felt a deep sense of coming home in the thinking, the ethics, the philosophy and way of being. And this firmly grounded my subsequent actions. I can pinpoint this as the catalyst for what I do now. It was in my early 20s, I was still at university, when I began devouring Fritjof's books. The Turning Point, Tao Physics, Uncommon Wisdom, all of these introduced to me by my father. Thanks, Dad. And um, on semester breaks, I'd head to the Gibson Lakes to read, to walk, to contemplate. In this one particular year, in 1991, sitting amongst a pile of Fritjof's books, sparks literally began flying. My mind and way of seeing and being in the world was cracking open. The ecological paradigm he described and advocated made complete sense to me and I felt totally different. Since then, I've been applying systems thinking in my daily life, both professionally and personally, through permaculture, community gardens, eco-villages and a wide range of education programs. Fritjof's 2014 Grand Synthesis, a text he co-wrote with Pierre-Luigi Luisi, The Systems View of Life, is a foundation of his online course, the Capra course, which you can access uh, twice a year, and also is something that I now mentor young people through uh, each time it runs. Anyway, in this episode, we begin our conversation talking about his new book, Patterns of Connection, which is a collection of 30 essays spanning 50 years, and it is an important history of grassroots movement from the counterculture of the 1960s to the emergence of a global civil society. He was writing about climate change back in 1988, 33 years ago. So I hope you enjoy this conversation just as much as I did having a chance to sit down and talk in depth again with Fritjof. Thanks for listening. Thank you so much for joining me today, Fritjof. It's wonderful to, to have you here um, discussing you. your new book. Um, I hear, what number book is this? This is... Right. Yeah. Well, it's, it's about maybe a dozen or so. I've, I've stopped counting, but here it is. It just came out. Oh, and fantastic. it is called Patterns of Connection. And um, it is a collection of essays. The subtitle of the book is Essential Essays from Five Decades. And so, you know, over the years, I wrote, as you know, I wrote a lot of books. I taught a lot of courses and seminars, and I wrote a lot of articles and essays. And uh, some of the ideas that I discussed in those essays never made it into any of my books, because I'm, I'm just a passionate writer, you know. I write all the time. 
So when I don't write for two weeks, I miss it. And I have to do something, you know, write a page or two. And so I wrote a lot of essays about various themes that uh, you won't find in any of my books. And uh, some, some of them never even appeared in print. And so these essays really reflect the evolution of my thinking over the years. The first one is, I think, 1972, something like this. So that was a very long time ago till, you know, up to, to 2020. And uh, I should also say that these essays combine and interrelate the two sides of my professional life. One side is my work as a scientist and writer, and the other one is, is my work as an environmental activist and educator. And so uh, because I have never been a pure theorist and always was al have always been concerned about social change and written about social change, um, these essays also um, reflect not only the trajectory of my career, but also the history of several grassroots movements of which I have been part. And so, you know, from way back in the 60s, the counterculture in the 60s, then the New Age movement in the 70s, uh, the rise of green politics in the 1980s, and and the the rise of the global civil society beginning in the late 1990s up to today so uh, there there is a an i think important history of of movements now as you know my research uh, of uh, the change of paradigms in science and society culminated in a textbook which I wrote with Pierluigi Luisi, a biochemist in Rome, good friend of mine, and uh, it's called The Systems View of Life. I just have right here. Yeah, <laughs> wonderful. And it is really a grand synthesis uh, of this uh, emerging systemic understanding of life. Now, the new book, Patterns of Connection, is not a book about my worldview. It's not a summary of my worldview, but it's a summary of the journey of how I got to this worldview. And it's a journey documented in this series of essays. There are quite a few. There are 30 essays. And uh, there are extensive commentaries that interlink the essays. So the essays are grouped in chapters according to subject matters that were at the forefront of my mind at particular times. And they are interlinked with, with a narrative, with an ongoing narrative. So every chapter starts with three or four pages narrative, giving the philosophical context and the, uh, the historical context. So, so it's, it's a story that I'm, I'm telling, and it's a, it's a very uh, personal story. It shows the evolution of my thinking uh and uh when i when i worked on it i was surprised uh at 
how early sometimes I wrote about certain things. I I wrote this down. Let's see whether I can find this. Uh, to give you a few examples, I, I um, projected that a political party would arise as a coalition of environmentalists, feminists, and peace activists. And I wrote this in 1981, while the Green Party in Germany was just beginning to form. So I sort of, you know, had this in mind already at the time. And then, of course, I met them and I wrote another book with another colleague of mine about green politics. Uh, I, I wrote about climate change in 1988. I was not the only one, you know, other people wrote about climate change at that time. Uh, but it was very early. You know, it was, uh, you know, long before this became part of the public consciousness. Uh, I just discovered when I wrote the book that I had a lecture in 1986 where I advocated an earth ethics corresponding to the system's view of life. And this is more or less exactly what the Earth Charter does. Mm -hmm. The Earth Charter was uh, published in 2000. It was originated, it originated at the Rio Earth Summit in 1992. So 1986, that's six years before mm -hmm. the idea originated in Rio de Janeiro. And so it is quite surprising to see you know how my thinking evolved in 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 this way so so that's an i think of you know additional historical interest so the first the first part of the book is about the 1960s i have a long essay about these formative years of the 1960s about the influence of uh, the thinking of werner heisenberg and his book physics and philosophy on on my whole scientific uh, career and trajectory, my encounter with Eastern mysticism, and then the culmination of that in my first book, The Tao of Physics. Then subsequently, my shift of emphasis from physics to the life sciences in the mid-80s, and the long history of formulating this synthesis of the system's view of life, which took me about 30 years. And, of course, also my, uh, my activist work in education, with schools, in the peace movement, in, in various other social movements, in the green movement, and so on. So it is, it is quite rich in, in you know, various dimensions. And I, I really enjoyed writing it. And I'm very happy with the way they produced the book. It's a beautiful book. Oh, I can't wait to read it. Uh, you know, because I, for a very long time, um, your your works and, and, you know, being at Schumacher College has been, a, you know, a deep source of, of inspiration, but also, um, you know, like you're saying, it's, it, where is it that we're needing to be thinking and where is it that we're needing to be focusing our attention? And, and they're the sorts of things that, that you've been writing about. One of the books that I, I really loved reading um, early on was um, your series of conversations, and I really yes. loved that. It's called, it's called Uncommon Wisdom. Yeah. That's 
my most personal book. Mm. And that, that tells the story actually from my childhood to uh, the writing of The Turning Point, which was published in 1982. Uh, and, and there is an overlap. So Patterns of Connection, in a sense, continues the, the journey, but it, it is less uh, intimate than Uncommon Wisdom, less personal in the sense that the personal part is about my ideas and how they evolved. But in Uncommon Wisdom, I focus on the people I met and, and how I met them and, and the times we spent together. And, and it has, you know, a lot of emotional scenes too. It mm -hmm. just has the, the full spectrum. And how was your, because for a very long time, you've been teaching at Schumacher College. How right. did your uh, time at that college uh, influence or contribute somehow um, to your work? Well, it, it, it was uh, very significant because for, for, for several reasons, you know, Schumacher College has been uh, a place where uh, you could try out new ideas, often radically new ideas, in a very safe environment. So, you know, as, as a scientist and philosopher, uh, I would otherwise go and give a seminar at some university. But uh, the, uh, the climate there is very different because our academic world is not only fragmented, but also very competitive. And I remember well from my days as a physicist, I spent 20 years doing research in theoretical physics, and I would go to hundreds of seminars. And the mindset people have at those seminars is when you give a talk about some new ideas, some new theory, they listen to it, but they listen to it with the attempt, with the, with the intent to shoot it down, you know, and, and to challenge it. Now, challenging is all okay, but they do it in a very aggressive and competitive way. Whereas at Schumacher College, what is unique at Schumacher College is there is um, an atmosphere of uh, great intellectual challenge combined with complete emotional security, emotional safety, because it is a community. It is a community sharing the same values. Underlying is, is a sense of spirituality, which, which Satish Kumar uh, sort of, you know, very, very lightly, you know, inserted into the culture of Schumacher College without being very heavy, without appearing as a guru or, you know, anything like that. So, so there's an underlying spirituality, there's a great sense of ethics, and in addition, uh, the, uh, the community uh, at Schumacher College is an international, a global community, and that was by design, that, that Satish didn't want just you know, Europeans or North Americans, but people from all over the world. So, so you have a very... And, and, and this community not only 
learns together, but also lives together and works together, which means that they're talking all the time. So it's a it's a 24-hour conversation almost, apart from the time that you're sleeping, but it starts early in the morning at cleanup and kitchen work and finishes late at night at the bar. And, you know, in between you have lectures and, and all kinds of uh, other activities. So for me, this has been a tremendous influence. Uh, I think you and I met in when, 1992, something uh, like that? That's right, 1992. Yeah. yeah, this was either my first or my second course. And and from that time on, I have taught courses there for about 20 years. And uh, I uh, I taught courses about, let's see, which which of my books the uh, the web of life which which was published in 1996 and then the hidden connections was published in 2002 and those are two key books in this synthesis of mine and i also taught courses about the science of leonardo da vinci and you know all all kinds of other things that i also wrote about so for me this has been extremely valuable uh, in uh, trying out and testing ideas in a safe environment and also in experiencing uh, communal learning and, and transformative learning. Yeah, I think, I think everyone who experienced that and, and particularly those extended stays, you know, that was a five-week course. That was quite an intensive period of time. It was, yeah. Yes. So, so it, I I wanted to ask you a little bit more about your activism um, because I think as a scholar activist, I think this is a really powerful place to be. It's like an activism with ideas. But in your in your education activism and peace activism, can you describe a little bit more about what you think it is to be an activist and particularly within the context of the situation we're finding ourselves in right now? Well, uh, I think... Uh my my contribution has been to to show how the major problems of our time are all systemic problems which means that none of them can be uh addressed or solved in isolation whether you talk about energy the environment uh economic inequality uh, the climate uh, uh, catastrophe, the climate emergency, and now also the COVID pandemic. All these, all these problems are global problems, and they're all interconnected and interdependent, and uh, they need systemic solutions, which means solutions that do not deal with any problem in isolation, but all, always in relationship to other problems. And so you really need a kind of systemic thinking uh, to to address and, and 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 solve these problems so you know for instance in the in the early 1980s i spoke at peace conferences and i would and, and this is this by the way is in my essay book because these lectures then I transformed into essays for the book. So, for instance, I made a 
comparison between what I called at the time holistic, a holistic approach to peace, to peace, and a holistic approach to health. And and there are quite a few surprising parallels. And and I also analyzed the nature of uh, of peace. Beginning, let's see whether I can recall this. This was a very long time ago, but beginning from peace as the absence of war to the absence of a threat of war, sort of just the the, the stress and insecurity of a threat of war, and then the kind of Gandhian spiritual approach to ahimsa nonviolence as the absence of a possibility of war so so to go deeper and deeper and so i would speak about this or i remember a seminar i gave somewhere in the united states about nuclear power and and again you need a systems approach to understand the dangers of nuclear power, uh, just still today, less so today, but until recently, I think there were many people who thought, well, nuclear power doesn't produce any greenhouse gases, mm-hmm. so so that's the green solution for the future. But uh, you can show from a systems approach that this is not true because um, to get to a, a place where there is a production of energy in a nuclear reactor, a lot of things have to be done before. You know, the mining of the uranium, the refining, the milling, the building of the power plant, and all this um, uh, produces greenhouse gases. And uh, the other, well, there, there, there are many, many aspects to it. One other one is that uranium is finite. It's not, it's not like solar energy that is infinite. Uranium is finite, and the more difficult it gets to mine, the more energy you need. And so you come to a point, and this has been estimated, uh, you come to a point where you need as much energy to mine the uranium and prepare it as you produce in the power plant. So you need to look at, at these things. And then, of course, there is the uh, the connection between nuclear power and nuclear weapons. Uh, I remember a statement by Al Gore from the time when he was vice president uh, who said that every problem with uh, proliferation of nuclear weapons that he remembers from his uh, his uh, work as, as vice president, every problem was linked to a nuclear reactor somewhere. Mm. So, so there, is, there, there are all these connections. There is also the, uh, the question of democracy, you know, a highly centralized, high-tech energy source needs a lot of protection because of, you know, the connection, the threat of terrorism. So it needs essentially a police state, you know, and it just goes on and on. So, so and my the, and then the waste, you know, dealing with the waste yeah. at the end of it too. Well, on on the positive side, and this is more closer to what you are working on. I have worked a lot on agroecology, 
mm-hmm. and have had a lot of discussions with uh, you know permaculturists are you call yourself a permaculturist or I guess what so. is uh, yeah and and you know and and agroecologists to present a systemic view of of agriculture because Uh, systemic solutions typically solve several problems at the same time. And so a sustainable uh, regenerative agriculture uh, contributes significantly to uh, solving uh, the energy problem because it doesn't have these massive energy inputs that industrial agriculture has. The organically grown food has a massive impact on public health because we know that so many chronic diseases are linked to our diet. And finally, uh, the organic soil is a carbon-rich soil, which means it pulls down carbon from the atmosphere and locks it up in organic substances and therefore uh, contributes significantly to uh, you know, solving the climate crisis. So that's just one example of a systemic solution. So in my activist work, I would, I would apply systemic thinking to uh, the global problems we have, and I would attend conferences with uh, you know, fellow activists like you know, Vandana Shiva or Hazel Henderson or Jerry Manda and, uh, you know, Bill McKibben and, and, and uh, Paul Hawken, you know, many, many others. So, so I, would, I would be the interface and I would, I would present a, a scientific view, but also learn, learn a lot from activists. I remember when I, when I wrote The Turning Point uh, in the early 1980s, I was teaching a course at McAllister College, which is in uh, uh, Minneapolis. In, uh, there are two twin cities, Minneapolis and St. Paul and uh, in Minnesota. And McAllister College is a well-known college in St. Paul. And I spent a semester there. And uh, I, while I was teaching, I prepared. I was doing research for writing The Turning Point, And I was doing research on agriculture and food. And I realized something which I had not known before, that uh, in Minnesota, there are a lot of activist farmers. So I went to a conference about uh, sustainable farming in Minnesota, which was just attended by farmers. And, And I met several of them. And then subsequently... I visited them on their farms and uh, it was winter. So I, I went on skis, you know, so it was, it was quite, uh, quite an experience. I borrowed some skis and some people that I met took me from farm to farm, you know, skiing (laughs) along. And, and those, that was the, the sort of substance behind what I wrote about farming and agriculture in the turning point, which is, you know, significant about at least ten pages. So I, uh, I was ready to. I was always willing to hang out with people. In education, is the same time. I spend, you know, probably a hundred hours 
just sitting on the floor with a group of teachers, listening to them and their problems in schools and so on. So, so that I would say is part of my activist work. Mm. Do you want to talk a little bit more about the the education side of, of things? What what are some of the key issues that you were hearing from those teachers? Um, I don't know if I've heard you speak about that before. I know that you were part of you know you founded yes. the Centre for Eco Literacy, but well, did that again, emerge out of your conversations with the teachers? Again, again, there's an essay in the book which <laughs> is uh, taken from. Uh, presentations I, I gave to teachers. And this essay is different from the other essays in the book because it is in a conversational tone. It's taken from a seminar in a very relaxed conversational tone. And, uh, you know, what I heard from teachers was, uh, first of all, that school children. Uh, are often very isolated in terms of their experience of nature. They don't get out into nature much. Uh, they often grow up in urban environments, and and you know some of these kids, especially in poorer uh, urban regions, uh, don't have a clear idea of where their food comes from. You know, they they think it comes from supermarket shelves. They're not educated about this. So the first thing, and and of course I was promoting ecological literacy, being educated and literate about the principles of organization of ecosystems, the principles of sustainability. So in order to really experience those uh, at the level of a school child, you need to get the kids out into nature and you need to organized, say, in a school garden, for instance, or in on a beach, on a creek, and so on. And, and then you need to organize the school curriculum around this experience. And if you want to have a systemic approach, it has to involve the, the entire school. It cannot be just one, one teacher or one classroom. It has to be the entire school. Because, you know, these issues are interconnected. Systemic thinking is thinking in terms of connections. And so uh, in most of our public schools, teachers are very isolated. They don't talk much to each other. They sometimes don't even have lunch together. They have lunch by themselves. They don't talk to each other. And so at the Center for Ecoliteracy, which I co-founded with a group of friends in the mid-1990s, when we had teacher retreats for the first few years, most of what we did was community building. You know, not teaching ecology, but community building, because that was a prerequisite. And so uh, I learned a lot from teachers also about leadership, about a kind of uh, um, what I would now call systemic leadership, which consists in uh, preparing an environment where uh, creativity is enhanced, where new ideas emerge. And this kind of leadership uh, is best uh, uh, practiced in a distributive way where you have many leaders, not just one leader. So uh, I had some very impressive examples among the teachers I met 
of this kind of uh, systemic leadership. Mm-hmm. I also learned that uh, I started out in uh, 1992 when I was, you have to stop me when it gets too long because when I get into telling my stories. <laughs> I'm not going to stop you. <laughs> okay. So, so in 1992, I gave a lecture in uh, Oregon, in Portland, Oregon, about something or other, and I at some university, and I was asked whether I would be interested in helping a school, a high school, develop an environmental education curriculum. And I said, uh, yes, I would be interested in it, but it would have to be more than that. It would have to be systemic. It would involve the whole school. And from that time on, I realized not only that the whole school has to be involved, but when I got home from the trip and assembled uh, some colleagues, some educators and other people I knew, uh, we had the idea of developing a curriculum. And yes, it would be systemic and so on, but we would develop it and we would present it to the teachers. And uh, in the next few years, I learned that this is not the way to go about it because teachers get presented things all the time. You know, the the school has certain rules and regulations. The state has regulations. There are federal regulations. There are, you know, science associations and all kinds of organizations that that suggest school curricula to teachers. And the teachers usually take them and put them on the shelf and there they stay on the shelf. And so what you have to do is to develop a curriculum with the teachers. And this is why I spent so many hours just sitting on the floor listening to them, because only if they have a hand in developing the curriculum will they buy into it and use it. So those are just some of the things, but this is a very, a very rich field, and and you know part of it is in the essay book. Mm, great. Oh, I wanted to, you know, you've touched on a number of different things here from from an activist perspective and and looking at, you know, where is the change? I mean, the change is is everywhere by the sounds of it. Uh, you know, from whether you're an educator, that be the focus. Whether you're, you know. Um, a farmer, that be the focus. But I right. also hear you talk in, in, on many occasions about there needing to be a shift in political will. You know, we have everything that yeah. we need, but yet there needs to be a shift. Now, I, I wonder whether, like, I guess the question is, where is the change? Where is the change that we need well, to let make? Me, let me give you uh a recent example of significant change that happened in the United States and actually around the world. Uh, but it uh, it didn't start in the United States. Uh, it, it started um, with the Occupy movement, which I think was uh, about 10 years ago. And uh, the Occupy movement was a spontaneous movement uh, was first called Occupy Wall Street, but it built on movements in the Middle East, uh, in Tunisia. I think it started in Tunisia, 
And uh, there was uh, a grassroots movement in Spain. They called themselves the Indignados. And there were various protest grassroots movements protesting against social and economic inequality. And they were uh, very spontaneous and, and uh, seemed disorganized, but had their own principles of organization, which they developed very creatively. And uh, they didn't last very long. And uh, many observers, political observers of a more conventional sort, you know, said that the Occupy movement was really a failure. But what it achieved was that in talking about economic inequality, it coined that phrase of the 1% and the 99%. And it coined that slogan, we are the 99%. And the 1% are the super rich who don't pay taxes, who control politics, you know, uh, like... uh, Bezos and and uh, these these Richard Branson and these super rich people uh, and and uh, uh, the Occupy movement exposed them with this slogan of the one percent versus the ninety nine percent and um, this was taken up by many youth movements and became part of the American political dialogue. And in the last presidential election, this was a significant part of the political dialogue, uh, driven by Bernie Sanders, who uh, you will remember was the Democratic, uh, one of the Democratic candidates who ran against uh, Joe Biden. And uh, Bernie did not win the nomination, but he had a very strong youth movement behind him who expressed these values of, um, you know, ecological sustainability, human dignity, and the, the rights of the 99%, exactly the kind of thing the Occupy movement initiated, And uh, Joe Biden was smart enough to realize when he became candidate that he could not win the election without Bernie Sanders and without the youth vote, which was in Bernie Sanders' camp. And so uh, Biden uh, organized a, a working group, uh, a task force, I think they called it, you know, from uh, people in, in the Bernie Sanders camp and in the Biden camp to talk about future policies. And so now, right now, uh, the uh, the Biden administration has two policy packages in in going through Congress with a lot of difficulty, but trying to make it through Congress. The one is a policy package about improving infrastructure, which is the easier one, and it it will cost $1.5 trillion. And the other one is a social policy and climate policy package, which is the more difficult one because there's huge corporate opposition, but it is uh, it will cost 
$3.5 billion. And the only way to finance it, there, there are several possibilities of finance, but the main part is that you have to force the rich to pay taxes, which most of them don't do or do very reluctantly. And so the package includes a very slight increase of corporate taxes and taxes of the so-called 1%. And this is, you know, uh, it's the most radical package of social policies since uh, Roosevelt's uh, New Deal. And this goes back directly to Bernie Sanders and from Sanders via the youth movement to the Occupy movement. So you can see how activism, you know, protest and uh, creative social movements can be successful. I think it's it's quite dramatic. They shift, they shift how we think and how we, yeah, our, our perception about things. Yeah, that's right. What, what, well, what's your take? To come to the present, you know, to talk a little bit more about these youth movements, we we have several youth movements now who are very strong in the United States. We have the Sunrise Movement, which uh, just a few years ago was just a bunch of kids, you know, and now they have representatives in Washington. They talk to the media. They are a strong political voice in the country. We have in the UK, we have the Extinction Rebellion. And then we have this little girl, you know, who is no longer a little girl, Greta Thunberg, who is now 18, who sat in front of her school striking for climate and sparked a worldwide movement, you know, Fridays Mm -hmm. for Future. So we have these youth movements. And... um, Let me tell you what my concern is. My concern is that uh, I know that the values and ideas of these youth youth movements are completely consistent with the kind of systemic thinking that I've spent most of my professional life developing and teaching. And uh, so I would love to be able to establish a bridge between the community of elders to which I belong, who have spent the last 40 years developing a conceptual framework for a new worldview and a new value system, and the energy and passion of the youth who are very successful in in making their voices heard. Now, I, I, in previous years, you know, I took part in anti-nuclear marches. I went to, I actually went to Occupy meetings. Uh, my daughter was active in the Occupy movement, leading these, these circles or groups or whatever they were called. I went to Bernie Sanders uh, uh, rallies and so on. But, you know, as I'm getting older, I'm not going to continue to go out in the street and protest. But I can make a valuable contribution by showing the young people that their values and their ideas are totally consistent with some of the most advanced thinking in science. And so I would love to be able to to make this bridge, you know. And uh, in, in the online course I teach, the CAPRA course, I have 
plenty of room for young people, not only your uh, Perma Youth Group, but if, if somebody from the Sunrise Movement comes and says, we have five young leaders who would love to learn about systemic thinking, you know, they can take my course. You know, I would be very glad to offer them scholarships. I'm so excited to hear that. And one of the things that we're trying to do with Perma Youth too is to connect with Sunrise, with Exile, with all of the yeah. different youth movements. And there's an organisation called Climate 2025 who I'm working with to try and see if we can bring together these different groups in a way that this conversation could happen. And I would love to, you know, help in any way to, to host that bridging uh, that's extremely exciting because, like you're yeah. saying, understanding that depth of, yeah. of science and thinking that where they're standing now, they, they're they not alone. Their, think, their thinking and their action is based on this huge wealth of knowledge and experience and that they're supported. I think that would be so powerful. We were about to dive into another topic, Fritjof's characteristics of living systems but we decide to wait and share that when we're with the Capra Youth Cohort soon. So I'll make sure I record and post that here too. I hope you've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Make sure you read the show notes below for more links about Fritjof's work and also a transcript. And don't forget to subscribe. So that's all for today. Thanks so much for joining me. If you like a copy of my top 10 books to read, Click the link below, pop in your email, and I'll send it straight to you. You can also watch this interview over on my YouTube channel. I'll put the link below as well. And don't forget to subscribe, leave a comment, and if you've enjoyed it, please consider giving me a star rating. Believe it or not, the more people do this, the more podcast bots will discover this little podcast. So thanks again, and I'll see you again next week.